0: Good morning again, St. Paul's. Really great to have you with us whether you're joining us online or in person. Everything in the world is about sex, except sex, which is about power. Oscar Wilde. The most common way that people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. Alice Walker. Power. We all have it to differing degrees, and most of us want more of it. Whether it's in our relationships, you want the power to no longer be single, or you want to have the power to change the trajectory of your 20-something's life, or we want more power in our places of work to um, stop this pandemic's devastating impact on your industry, or the power to successfully secure a new job. We all have power to differing degrees, and most of us want more of it. And in Western culture, at least, uh, the more power you have means the more people do your bidding, the more other people serve you. We're halfway through our teaching series, This Is Jesus, looking at the most googled man in the world through the lens of that first century writer, uh, Mark. And last week, we read of Jesus' interaction with an affluent young adult, like some of you here today. Someone whose wealth would have given him power and influence. And the passage that Ben just read for us, it's also, it's about power. How Jesus uses the power that he has, and what the implications of that are for anyone who wants to follow him. And whether you're curious about Jesus, maybe you're critical of the church, or you're already committed, this morning we're going to look at the purpose of power for Jesus and what it means for us in our daily lives. So if you wanna pull up the passage on your phone, uh, it's Mark chapter 10, 32 to 45, or it's in page 46 of the Pew Bible in front of you, you might find that helpful. So the purpose of power, for Jesus and for us. Let's remind ourselves of the contours of the encounter that Mark records. Jesus had been trying to train his leadership team of disciples for a future uh, where he won't be physically present because of his impending death. And so he's been teaching them about finances and relationships, those Uh, Two things that every parent wants their child to understand before they leave home. And we know that what he has been teaching them about finances and relationships, it's been super hard to swallow. Our first verse, verse 32, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were amazed. And as they were making their way to the Capitol, the two brothers, James and John, spot their opportunity to get Jesus on his own and begin a conversation, which we just got to listen in on today. Now, one of the wonderful things about young children is that they haven't yet developed the sophisticated filters that uh, most of us adults have. They just say exactly what they, and probably you, are thinking. A few years ago, when our daughters were younger, we went to visit my husband's grandfather for his 100th birthday in Ottawa. And on the car ride to Ottawa, Tim and I were sitting in the front of the car. We were chatting. The girls were in the back. And I remarked to Tim how interesting it was that my grandmother uh, had also lived to 100, and she died in her 100th year. And noting the longevity on both sides of our family, Poor Tim jokingly replied, Oh man, this means we're gonna be married for like 75 years. Anyway, our middle daughter Kate, who was about five at the time, she'd clearly been listening closely in the back seat. So that when we were at Grampy's birthday lunch about an hour later, as she was slurping her soup, she piped up Grampy, how old are you again? Uh oh. Tim and I thought, here it comes. And it was like a train wreck happening in slow motion. Grampy replied, well Kate, today's my 100th birthday. And without even looking up from her soup, she calmly said, right, well it's good we're having a party because you're gonna die this year. Right, no filter at all. And James and John are grown men. And yet they speak their mind to Jesus, seemingly with no filter. Verse 35. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow. Like, wow. You know, I really give it to James and John, 10 out of 10 for chutzpah. I mean, I know we all want that, but rarely do we have the courage to say it out loud. Not so James and John. And you can almost... Hear the weariness in Jesus' voice. Yes, James. Yes, John. What is it you want me to do for you? And the two just lay it out there like a couple of five-year-olds. Jesus, when you go viral, when you overthrow the evil Romans, Jesus, when you get that big promotion and you're finally sitting in the corner office, Jesus, we want to be your number two guys to sit on your right hand and your left. And literally five minutes before this conversation, Jesus had taken aside his disciples, which included James and John, and this is what he had said to them for the third time. Verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, me, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, log him and kill him. Five minutes ago, Jesus, I'm going to be tortured and killed. James and John, could, could we get upgrades? Like, we like our steak medium rare. Is the cream organic? James and John, they're requesting privileged places of authority in the Make Israel Great Again plan they think Jesus is about to inaugurate. And in doing so, old Zebedee's boys seem to have missed almost entirely everything Jesus has said and done in the last three years. Now, to be fair to them, when Jesus had been giving those difficult teachings on relationships and finances, which Tyler and Karen have covered for us the last few weeks, the writer Matthew, he records Peter, who was also part of the inner three with James and John, Peter just kind of blurted out what everybody was thinking. These are hard teachings, Jesus. We've left everything to follow you. When your mission's complete, will there be anything left over for us? And this was Jesus' reply. It's, It's Matthew 19, verse 28. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, a Jewish title for the Messiah that Jesus frequently used to refer to himself, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me would also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And to be fair to them, I think James and John, their ears just pricked up at the talk of thrones, assuming that Jesus meant literal ones. And like right now in Jerusalem, when the occupying Romans are overthrown by the military insurrection Jesus was about to start, and they just wanted to ensure that they had the best thrones. And controlling his disappointment and frustration with these two young men, Jesus gently rebukes them for their arrogance and, and for their literalism. And he speaks about the cup he must drink and the baptism he must undergo, subtly alluding to the violence and death that he knows awaits him in the capital. No problem, Jesus. James and John explain, we got this, we're right here with you. And not wanting to immediately burst their bubble, Jesus waits until four chapters later to tell them that they're actually going to abandon him in his darkest hour. Instead of dropping that bomb, he addresses their desire for power, their desire for prestige, and notice that Mark Records for us in verse 41 that James and John were not the only disciples enticed by visions of the corner office. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. The other disciples fume over the brothers' bid to outflank them in the upcoming cabinet reshuffle. They are no better. And before Jesus shows them how he's going to use his power, he holds up to them the power conventions of the Gentile, the Roman, authorities as negative examples. The occupying Romans use their power to coerce and control, to maintain their dominance, to sustain their lifestyle. And here we come to the heart of the matter. The purpose of power for Jesus and what that means for the daily lives of anyone who wants to follow him. It's Mark 10, verse 45, and many scholars see this as the single most important line that Mark recorded Jesus ever saying. Mark 10, 45, the son of man, there's that messianic title again, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A ransom for many. As I said, in most cultures, the more power you have, the more people serve you. That's how you know you have power in the first place. That's, that's why we really dislike that feeling of powerlessness. But Jesus is turning this understanding of power on its head. And he's explicitly linking his shocking understanding of the purpose of power to serve others. He's linking it to his own impending death. And Jesus' mention of a ransom indicates that his death will be more than just a, a martyr's tragic protest against an unjust system. The word in question, ransom, litron in the original Greek if you want to sound fancy, it indicates that his death on the cross, it does something. It accomplishes something tangible. A ransom is paid to free you for something, free you from someone. And Jesus, who left the worship of throngs of angels and the majesty and wonder of life with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus left all that power and beauty behind to become human, to suffer, to die. Jesus used the power that he had as God in the flesh to serve, to give his life as a ransom so we could be free. Let me illustrate. Let me, let me illustrate how Jesus both used his power and what this power with a purpose, what it does for us. Let me illustrate. August 16, 1987. Northwest Airlines Flight 225. It crashed. Just after taking off from the Detroit airport, there was only one survivor, a four-year-old girl from Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when rescuers found Cecilia, they didn't believe she'd been on the plane. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around Cecilia and wouldn't let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love, neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth. Paula gave up her life as a ransom for her daughter to live. And without her mother's service, that little girl would surely have died. On the cross, Jesus is wrapping his arms around each of us, shielding us from the ultimate consequences of our sin, of our consistently day in and day out destructive choices, yours and mine. He takes in his own body, all the tragedy and disaster, the fall and the flames of our lives, of our world, and he dies under its weight so that we can walk free from the wreckage on the highway. On the cross, we have God, who is in the ultimate place of power and authority. We have God in Christ reversing places with us. On the cross, all the values of our world are turned on their heads, Jesus wins through losing, he achieves power through service, and he comes to greatness and wealth by giving it all away. And not only does Jesus use his power to serve us, the freedom from the ultimate consequences of sin that we receive, it then gives us a power to serve others. Writer Brenning Manning says that only sacrificial love can move us to change. Power affects behavior, he writes. But only love affects the heart. And nothing on earth so moves the heart as suffering love. We can only live a life of reversed values in this city, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first, Because Jesus has put us where he deserves to be. Before the throne of God. Beloved, accepted, cherished by God. And that great exchange of the cross, which we talked about our first week of this series, God putting God's self where we deserve to be. When we let such suffering love shape our hearts, it creates a different kind of person. Who lives a different kind of life. And it's a daily life where we no longer need to have our identity, our hope, our purpose in life justified through status or money or race. We can accept being rejected by the culture because we're accepted by God. And if this world is all there is, like if this is it, why would you work against injustice? If it meant losing your reputation or your job, I wouldn't. But because Jesus used his power to serve us on the cross, Christians can, for example, look at money as something to give away, to serve God's purposes of justice and hope for all, and because we never need to fear God's abandonment. And Jesus is saying, if you want to have power to shape other people's lives for the better. The way to gain that power is to sacrificially love people in a way that they can't imagine their life without you. I am James and John. I want God to do for me anything that I ask. I'd love to have power to control God, wouldn't you? Jesus shows us not only the divine purpose of power to serve, but also gives us power with a purpose. His suffering love on the cross can shape my heart and yours so we can serve others with love and humility. What an impact in your friendships. What a gift in your marriage. What an impact on this church for this city right now. And if we want that kind of power, Why don't we pray for it? Just where you're seated, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your son came to serve and not be served. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus puts us where he deserves to be before your throne, loved and cherished. Soften our hearts, shape our wills and mind that this suffering love would become in our lives a power with a purpose to serve and not be served. Amen.